Hey, this is Anne. Just a heads up that this episode contains strong language and talks quite a bit about the use of psychedelic drugs. Listener discretion is advised. From Colorado Public Radio and PRX, this is On Something. Here I am, I'm an African-American man living in the South, and I'm going to this farm in a very conservative part of Maryland where I'm seeing signs that are, you know, clearly signs that communicate to me, I'm not welcome here, like Confederate flags. Oh, no. And then walking in the woods, we must have walked in the woods for like 10 minutes on this beautiful muddy path and over this bridge. Dre Wright was on a journey both literally and figuratively. At age 40, he was having a bit of an identity crisis. So I get to this farm, beautiful farm, and all these people very smiling and nice, but I've also watched way too much TV growing up. So I'm thinking this is like a get out situation where they're gonna, (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean? Now, Dre's skepticism was understandable. He was on his way to partake in ayahuasca for the first time. It's a tea made from two plants that are native to the Amazon rainforest. And when people drink it, they sometimes have visions and then they vomit. Dre didn't picture himself in this kind of situation. He didn't picture himself having visions, especially not with these guys, who made him wonder if he might be putting himself in danger. But psychedelics and the search for spiritual enlightenment both tend to take you to unexpected places, don't they? So on he walked, trying to leave behind the stuff he saw in the movies. Just a few weeks earlier, he had tried weed for the first time. In a way, he was also leaving behind the person that he was. That person was depressed, out of shape, and didn't like who he had become. And that person definitely didn't do drugs. But as Dre peeked over the edge of his 40th birthday, he could see fatherhood looming on the horizon. His partner was pregnant. Look, I have a kid coming, and I do not want to project all of my stuff onto this human being. So, like, either they're going to roast me alive tonight and stuff an apple in my mouth, or I'm going to start working my stuff out. So I'm, I'm like, I'm here to ride or die, right? So I get in the space. Dre drank his tea and braced himself for the long road ahead. The first three or four hours, he was miserable, vomiting all over the place and starting to have even more doubts about this whole thing. And then at some point I was so exhausted that I surrendered. And my ego let go. And I was like, you know, I just want to die. I just don't want to, I don't want to be here anymore. And it was that, that second, I started to have compassion for other people in the room who were purging. And I went from this miserable experience to the most profound experience of my life. Like I felt, I went from anger and resentment and distrust to a deep sense of love and gratitude for everything on this planet and in the universe. And then every question I had contemplated, Do aliens exist? What is the meaning of life? What am I here to do? All those questions were being amplified and and expressed to me all at the same time. It was, it was incredible. 
I left that ceremony very clear that this was going to be my path. Suddenly, he felt unstuck. Ayahuasca and cannabis. He looked at them as medicines for his spirit that helped him find clarity and purpose. They would set him on a path that would eventually, as he sees it, lead him to become a kind of spokesperson for misunderstood plants. He eventually decided to become a shaman. He started learning the ways of the Shipibo Conibo tribe, indigenous people in Peru who live in the Amazon rainforest. They're probably most well-known for their ancient tradition of ayahuasca ceremonies. He's also learned to work with many other plants since then. Sure, you could put a lot of them into a bucket and label that bucket psychedelics. And right now, psychedelics are on the verge of transforming modern medicine. Ketamine, mushrooms, MDMA, it is all on the table. Today, the next frontier of legalization and healthcare, and what it's all got to do with equity. This is On Something, stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. All right, no one has ever accused me of being trendy, but I don't think anyone would argue with me if I said psychedelics have positively become a trend. When I started Goop in 2008, I was like, my calling is something else besides, you know, making out with Matt Damon on screen or whatever. (laughs) Gwyneth Paltrow even kicked off her Netflix show, The Goop Lab, with an episode all about psychedelics. We know at Goop, obviously, the psychedelics are controversial. But what we try to do at Goop is to be open-minded and explore ideas that may seem out there. Psychedelics have been gooped. In some ways, they're just another product that you can try to feel well. It's in there somewhere in the broader melting pot of wellness and mindfulness and all of those soothing colors and yoga pants and so on. If you've been listening to our season so far, you'll know that legal weed has become just as big of a business as the whole goop industrial complex. Today, in the next installment of our series called Fair Shake, about the pitfalls along the path to social equity, we're looking at legalization's next act, one that could repeat a lot of mistakes of the first act. Why are we talking about this now? Well, one state, Oregon, voted to legalize psilocybin mushrooms in the 2020 election. It's strictly for medicinal use, and the state is still in the rulemaking process, so we don't know much about how it will look just yet. But even before 2020, cities here and there have been voting to decriminalize mushrooms and other psychedelics. Breakthrough research out of NYU and Johns Hopkins has set the stage for a sort of psychedelic renaissance. But what is going to happen when they become just another industry, like cannabis? Before we go too far down this road, we should talk about word choice. In these conversations, the narrative tends to be a white male predominant perspective around these medicines, right? So, you know, they use words like tripping, which seems uncomfortable versus a journey or a ceremony, right? Dre says 
first things first. These are not party drugs to him. You do not come to him to trip on anything. Words are powerful, right? They can be either powerful or they can be tremendously harmful. And so we want to be really conscious about how we use these. And we should take some of the cues from our elders have been doing these for millennia, not, you know, us new folks who are just, you know, coming to these practices. But Dre also understands that this is not how most people come to interact with psychedelics for the first time. A lot of times it does happen at a party or a concert or a club, because that's where these things tend to find you. Charlotte James, who is Dre's partner in business and ceremony, says that's not anything to be ashamed of either. I started using cannabis when I was 14. I think now I'm able to recognize that some of those experiences were much more profound maybe than I recognized at that age. And then my introduction was really through MDMA. And so most of my early experiences were not in what we would consider a ceremonial setting, but they were nonetheless incredibly impactful in me being able to be more comfortable being the sort of quote-unquote weirdo that I had always felt, but maybe, like, tried to hide a little bit. In the places where she could go to experiment, she pretty much never saw people who looked like her. It's almost ironic. Experimenting in these spaces made Charlotte feel more comfortable in her own skin. But at the same time, the places where she could experiment were inherently places where she stood out. All of my early experiences were in, like, dingy-ass warehouses with real grungy burner kids. And I was like, I do not spin fire. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I do not dress like I'm going to the Renaissance Fair on the daily. (laughs) My introduction to these medicines were with predominantly non-BIPOC groups of people until I moved to South America. And even then it was like a lot of expats. So my first two really marked experiences were both when I lived in Bolivia, one with a group of women in Lake Titicaca, where I like overcame a lot of fears and one with some friends where I just like got a lot of the like sort of cool visual effects that helped me start to understand that there was like a veil between our world and another world. When she returned home to Baltimore and her everyday life, she started to long for that feeling of deep connection. She wanted to chase that feeling, to find more spaces where she wouldn't just feel like the one Black friend, but part of a greater whole. She thought there had to be others who felt this way, like psychedelics held some kind of promise for them, but that promise was often found in places that felt unwelcoming. And Charlotte wanted to do something about that. And in her search, she heard about a black shaman named Dre Wright, who also happened to be living in the Baltimore area. So she tracked him down. Our initial conversation was interesting. I was definitely super gung-ho on like trying to start these medicine circles for only BIPOC folks. And Dre was a little resistant to that. I do remember that conversation. And gave me the sort of teacher lesson on why we don't separate folks in ceremony and it's an inclusive space. 
you know, I, I, I wanted to give her some perspective around transcendence. You know, the, the purpose we're doing this is to connect to our ancestors, our allies, spirit guides, and all homo sapiens, which is part of that conversation. And I was like, mm, okay, all right. I'm going <laughs> to, <laughs> um, all right, I'm, I'll sit with that. But then she was brilliant in how she reacted, which was not to blow me off, but in a very gentle way, say, well, why don't you come to this conference? This People of Color and Psychedelics Conference in D.C. And yeah, it kind of started to just grow from there. And <laughs> I could tell that, <laughs> you know, this was really a wise Jedi Knight, right? That was talking to me because um, we went to this conference and I was blown away by how many people of color were all chiming the same sentiments that they felt really uncomfortable in spaces that were predominantly white. And many times harm was caused to them during that very vulnerable experience where they're expanding their consciousness and then someone intentionally or not created a tremendous amount of harm by diminishing their real struggle, the abuses that they're experiencing on a daily basis. So would you say that was like a turning point for you, Dre, and how you thought of this idea? Yeah, for sure. Most of the time when I had been in ceremonies, um, they were definitely, I was definitely the only person of color, one or few people of color in those experiences. I, I wasn't surprised at that, but I wanted to do something to affect change in that area. And the way they did that was by founding their own cooperative, the Ancestor Project. Their mission is to make safe spaces for people of color to interact with sacred earth medicines in ceremony. It's meant to be accessible and affordable, sometimes free. The project also represents an effort to reclaim these medicines in their original context, ceremony. As a reminder to everyone that ancient people figured out how to work with these medicines long before Johns Hopkins or NYU did. I'd say like 80% of the homo sapiens that are sitting across from us are coming because they have been traumatized by another human, primarily by words. And they're also very, very committed to their liberation from that trauma. People that come to these ceremonies are not looking for a shortcut because it's a lot of work. And to be clear, a ceremony is one way. With all the renewed interest in psychedelics, there are other ways to try them. Some of my specialty areas include psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, PTSD, and OCD. But I spend a lot of time doing ketamine-assisted therapy right now. After a quick break, ask your doctor if ketamine is right for you. Hey, it's Anne. I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Listeners like you make On Something possible. Hundreds of thousands of people have listened to our podcast since it launched back in 2019. You've been there with us while we've explored everything from CBD to cooking with cannabis to social equity across the entire industry. It is really humbling and I am so grateful. The reporting, the stories told, and the issues explored, you made all of that possible. 
And if you feel like helping our show, head to onsomething.org and contribute if you can. Once again, thank you so much. Welcome back. Before the break, we talked a lot about psychedelics as medicines in a ceremonial setting, a setting that Charlotte James and Dre Wright are trying to reclaim for people of color. But there is yet another setting where people may go to try to find healing through psychedelics, and that is psychedelic-assisted therapy. A lot of the times that is, in some cases, what brings clients to us is that, oh my goodness, I'm coming here because I have racialized trauma and I would like to seek psychedelic therapy for it. This is May Lee Halstead, a therapist at the Behavioral Wellness Clinic in Connecticut. She's trained to use ketamine to treat patients with particularly difficult cases of depression, PTSD, or OCD. What I often hear from clients is you get this beautiful third-person perspective of whatever's going on internally, whether that be your depression, some PTSD, or anxiety. You're able to look at your problems and circumstances very objectively, and you're able to kind of uh, zoom in that lens and pull back as well, which could be incredibly therapeutic for some people. Another secondary benefit of ketamine is that it increases neuroplasticity, which basically means the ability for the brain to develop much more efficient connections. That's something that we just don't have in medicine right now, the ability for something to speed up that process. Ketamine is the only mind-altering substance approved by the FDA for psychiatric treatment. It started out as an anesthetic. Patients can take it via lozenge or nasal spray. May Lee says ketamine-assisted therapy can be a game-changer for many people. And yet. How do people find you? I mean, how do people, like, how do patients find out that you exist, that this option is available to them? Honestly, that is something uh, that's always a, a work in progress knowing that these therapies even exist because there's still a lot of stigma around it. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, if you just take that barrier of stigma alone, you know, some people see the work that a psychedelic therapist and that I do as like, oh, you're just letting people do drugs. And it's like, oh, goodness. The stigma around psychedelics and drugs in general is still very strong. Maylee says some of the people who might be most helped by these kinds of therapies might never make it through her front door. Even many of the clients who do might need more help feeling comfortable with taking ketamine. Due to the war on drugs, there has been definite impacts to folks of color that want to come and, and try psychedelic therapy at all. Like, you have to shift the way we discuss the substances. We have to shift the safety around administration of these when working with folks of color. There's a lot more rapport that needs to be built here when it comes to that, because in another circumstance, if this medication were to be administered, it could lead to violence or incarceration as a result. I mean, it has. The other big barrier for psychedelic therapy is, of course, cost. And it should come as no surprise that these treatments aren't covered by health insurance. And May Lee says insurance companies don't have much reason to change that. I mean, do you, do you worry about access long term? 
Oh God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, what do you see as, as being sort of the biggest threat for placing these out of reach? One of them is that whenever you have people healing, you don't make money off of that long term. Oh. <laughs> and from an insurance and pharmaceutical company standpoint, why would we allow for this then? You're not making money any longer when you have healed individuals and well individuals. And so I see this with ketamine already, right? Like, yes, bravado, which is like the one that is, is patented, um, which is a microdose of ketamine through a nasal spray, right? So one dose of that right now runs roughly seven to $800 per dose. One spritz? One little spritz. And some people require this multiple times a month. Also, after you've been administered this, you have to wait two hours at your psychiatrist's office in case you have disassociative side effects. And so you're also taking up space in their office, which also costs money because they're going to have to put you in a nice little room and comfy and such. So that already, even if your insurance covers it, Okay, and then when what happens when you run out of your deductible and stuff like that, which is also really high, you're spending a lot of this out of pocket. And that can, of course, be traced back to the war on drugs. Many psychedelics became illegal under the 1967 Controlled Substances Act. Today, the FDA has to seek narrow exemptions from that law. So even though you're hearing groundbreaking stuff about psychedelics these days, there is a long way to go before the average person can get their hands on them in any legal way in the United States. The war on drugs has really made this process much more difficult, right? Like I think of MDMA, which was originally developed for couples therapy and then made its way into the club scene. And that's ultimately what made it become a scheduled drug at that point. LSD was also developed in a lab. Like, I mean, these things were already being used therapeutically, and then the war on drugs kind of came down and was like, no, we're taking this. This is illegal. It is deemed that it has no therapeutic value. It's addictive, which we all know is lies about all of those things. So basically, right now, we're working backwards from the Controlled Substances Act. And that's the danger here. The federal government can approve legal versions of these drugs, but the exceptions are typically very narrow, very expensive, and for a very small group of people who meet certain requirements. That alone keeps most people away. But even when it comes to the clinical trials on psychedelics, people of color are especially left out. A 2018 study showed that out of 18 trials conducted over more than two decades, Black people only made up less than 3% of all participants. Only a little over 2% were Latinx, and fewer than 5% were indigenous. So just think about that for a moment. We spent the first whole half of this episode talking about how many of these psychedelics, these breakthrough medicines, actually came from indigenous cultures, African cultures, Latinx cultures. And yet, even today, as the supposed psychedelic renaissance is taking shape, they are lucky if they are included at all. 
psychedelic therapy could really provide so many healing properties to various groups of people, particularly people of color when it comes to generational healing, when it comes to just um, dealing with reparations around psychedelics too, because a lot of the knowledge that we have about using psychedelics in this very medicinal and almost ceremonious form in some cases is because of different cultures, non-white cultures. And so there is definitely a need for it there, but there's also some due hesitancy. You know, it's definitely warranted because in some cases, it has led to absolute atrocities. So to May Lee, it makes total sense to carve out some kind of space for people of color to feel more comfortable. She's half Japanese and half indigenous herself, a member of the Homa Nation. Much like Charlotte and Dre in the psychedelics world, she looks around at the mental health field and sees few others like herself. But when it comes to therapy that feeling can be particularly harmful. It can be counterproductive. Like, imagine if you had survived domestic abuse, and then you went to a therapist who immediately asked, but did he really mean it that way? Are you sure he said that? A white therapist can unwittingly harm a patient of color by casting the same kind of doubt on their experiences of racism. Maylee goes so far as to call that experience traumatizing. So not only is it nice to carve out inclusive spaces, it's at times essential. Because that's where a lot of healing can take place. You know, the rest of the world, the baseline of the world is whiteness. They're very much deserving of having their own spaces where healing can take place without white supremacy lurking down all the time and and kind of limiting their ability to access that. But Dre Wright feels like there needs to be more kinds of options, like shared ceremony. Right now they're talking about like having a trained therapist that needs to be the person to administer these medicines. Well, lots of people of color don't go to therapists because for one thing, the therapists don't look like them. It's also a privileged place to be. Like, you know, you, therapy is something you do after your primary needs are easily met. Right. (laughs) Right. So there's definitely a danger that we could have another commoditized relationship with these medicines and where a a very privileged few people will have access, which is why we are working so hard to share the word to anybody who will listen. Because really, we are looking at the next quote unquote green rush. There are already more than a dozen psychedelic startups out there even more clinical trials. To put it simply, there are already a lot of big bets being made on psychedelics. And there's a real risk here of repeating the same cardinal sins of cannabis legalization, namely the large-scale exclusion of people of color. On Something is a labor of love, reported and written by me, Anne-Marie Awad. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Today's episode was produced by Rebecca Romberg. Our editors are Dennis Funk and Joe Erickson. Find a list of all of the talented people who helped make this episode possible in the show notes. 
This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This podcast is also made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org. Ask your doctor if ketamine is right for you. <laughs> we have fun. We, we have little hijinks. <laughs> From PR.